this opening image, I was looking for a way to immediately pull the audience into the film, um, you know, with this image of violence and all the rest. And uh, the the idea of it running backwards and becoming a, a sort of micro-representation of the structure of the whole film and the way things are going to come together came pretty late in the day. Um, we, f we shot it um, for real, as it were, the developing Polaroid, and um, we used a reverse mag on the camera for all of this reverse action up front. Um, because I wanted to be able to use the original negative and not not view the process as, a, as an optical. Joe Pantoliano uh, came in that day with a, a book of photos, Ouija photos, a sort of you know horrendous crime scenes, that kind of thing. It was very much after that uh, type of image, and I, I think I think we did that pretty well. I think um, it's very appropriate. What I like about the way this sequence works is you have time to think about what you're seeing as the titles go over and slowly register the strangeness of the movement and the fact the image is disappearing um, before we get right into it here with the uh, more obvious backwards stuff. All the sound here is actually forwards. I wanted to keep a conventional physicality to the, the thing even as the chronology was running backwards and use that as a, as a tool for for drawing people into the structure of the story. All this was shot um, with reverse mags, except that shot there, which is me actually blowing the shell casing out of frame. It was the only way we could find to have the illusion of it of it landing in the middle of the frame because it was such a tight close-up. The idea with the black and white sequences was always to present a documentary style, objective view of the character. Um, whereas in the color stuff, we are really trying to put the audience into Leonard's head, just showing them these, these images and uh, uh, these characters surrounding him and, and really being thrown into his, his dilemma. Um, and then sandwiching the jumps back in time uh, with the black and white sequences to to indicate the grammar of the of um, the movement back through the chronology, uh, but also to sort of reassure the audience that they were going to get a certain amount of objective information about the character. We right away wanted to show the way in which people might try and get one over on Leonard or manipulate him as we're drawing the audience into an understanding of what his particular handicap, the handicap he refers to is. Joe Pantoliano here doing a, a great job of just suggesting the sort of untrustworthy nature of the character um, and presenting the audience with the same difficulty Leonard's presented with, which is how far can you trust this guy? Clearly they have a history together, um, but the audience like Leonard is just trying to quickly assess this. We used these shots pushing in on this location uh, to try and create a little sequence that we could come back to in the black and white material at the very end of the film and you would recognize that movement that sort of pushing in uh, this was shot in a, uh, uh, a disused refinery it was done in uh, in long beach um, what are you talking about these tracks are only a few days old tracks 
Once again, we're just trying to inject a little bit of mystery up front and use the sort of iconography of the of the film noir, the thriller, you know, the bullets, the gun, that sort of thing. Um, and Joey introducing a little humour into the film, uh, which I thought was very important because it is potentially such grim material. Uh, it was very good to have both him and, and Guy Pearce sort of just lightening what they're doing a little bit, introducing a little bit of black comedy there. Teddy. These voiceovers contrast with the black and white scenes in that these are the voice of the mind, they're in the first person. And we're trying to just, once again, draw the audience into Leonard's consciousness. Didn't think so. This was actually shot on a set. Um, I think it's pretty effective. And with this section here, we wanted to just immediately introduce the, the key elements of the film. Leonard's passion, in a passionate quest for revenge the brutality he's capable of um, and then the repetition of a very memorable event in this case you know it's a gunshot to the head with this first loop uh, in time we wanted to to have something um, you know truly unforgettable um, a, a gunshot to the head seemed like about as good as you could get so we're immediately telling the audience we're trying to tell the audience um, you're back where you were in the scene before, and that's how the film is going to work. And here we're back into our sort of documentary mode. The voiceover, a lot of improvisation from Guy um, uh, after the film was finished, to some to picture, some not, and then we cut it together very tightly, the same way um, Dodie Dawn, my editor, and myself were cutting the, the images together in a documentary style, a little bit, a little bit more tightly uh, than the color scenes. And then here we're seeing the first of the, what runs through the film in terms of the, the creation of the Polaroids he references. Uh, part of the, the laying out of information uh, in the film uh, is, is seeing how he's uh, created these materials he uses. And this is the first time we start to see that. Uh, this was shot on location at a real motel, which was so perfect for what we wanted. If, if MC Escher was going to design a hotel, motel this would be it it's an enclosed courtyard so you really can't tell where you are all the angles are a little bit off everything's a little bit a bit circular and a bit strange and uh, it was ideal for what we were looking for with this glassed in lobby that you have to pass through to get to any of the rooms i like the idea that leonard will be forced continually into this interaction with uh, the motel uh, mr shelby from three motel clerk okay, what can i do for you leonard wonderfully played by mark boone Junior. I'm not sure. I think I may have asked you to hold my calls. You don't know? Well, I think I'm this sequence, we're really just trying to explain to the audience once again, you know, the way in which Leonard's condition can be manipulated, um, but also to give Leonard the opportunity for the first time in the film to really lay out what the, the condition is. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. I also try to get into the dialogue. Um, references to the way the film is going to work a little bit so laying out the condition uh, and then allowing Bert to sort of explain how, how we're going to interpret that in film uh, talks about it being backwards and as always with these interactions trying to suggest backstory because that's what's most frightening for Leonard uh, the continual impression that, that 
he's had an interaction with these people before that he can't tap into and that isn't fully represented in his, his notes and pictures and all the rest. That must suck. That's all backwards, I mean. So yeah, Bert's kind of explaining the structure here a little bit. And that was the key to the structure, is withholding from the audience the information that's withheld from, from Leonard. I, you know, what just happened. Um, but allowing them, hopefully, to sort of tap into uh, his desire to move forward and, and get some idea of what he's going to go do next. And, uh, in that way, I think the structure, um, as closely as possible, mirrors the the, uh, the mindset that this this character is trapped in. No, not as long as you uh, remember to pay the bill. Here we come to our next loop, which just involves a complex combination of little unrepeatable events, you know, the tapping the photo and the turning and the knocking on the door. We just wanted to right away create a complex loop, um, you know, so people would realize that they were seeing something they'd already seen before. As the film progresses, we find ourselves stripping them down a bit, using more shorthand. I love the suggestion from, from Jonah's story that um, there would be some dialogue between the different selves of this character, the past self and the present self. And we were able to get a little bit of that into the film, not as much as he was able to get the short story, but um, a little bit of that in these kind of sequences where he's written notes to himself. Um, I was uh, fascinated by the idea that somebody who could not create these memories would be essentially divided between the past self and the present self. That connection uh, between those those two aspects of, of himself uh, would be broken. Remember Sammy Jenkins. It's very important to uh, get this tattoo on screen early on. This is the second time we're seeing it. Um, I like the idea of, of visually creating a character who didn't look like he would have tattoos and then gradually discovering that with him. And the film is basically a continual series of as he says, waking up or being thrust into different situations and having to work your way out. That's Ross Vega, that's actually our location manager. The driving stuff was shot second unit, a lot of it, because we ran out of time to, to do the driving stuff ourselves, uh, except for uh, the characters' faces. This is the back of that motel, and you see later in the film, you see these kind of bars, very sort of prison-like, uh, which I thought was you know, wonderful. Um, this is now on set, uh, which I think matches beautifully. Um, a production designer, Patty Podesta, I thought did an incredible job of making the, the sets expressive but, but realistic, because I, I really wanted a kind of drab realism that a true update of a, of a film noir uh, should encompass. You know, when you look at these old films like, you know, Double Indemnity or a great. Uh, film noirs of the of the past, you know, they're they're set in uh, the the banal reality of the time, and uh, that's what I wanted to do with this film, not not to sort of you know dress it up with the nostalgic version, but create something modern. Um, Wally Fister, the director of photography, is shooting these scenes. I I was pretty insistent with him to you know try and keep the light from the windows and that kind of thing, and he really tapped into my desire to keep it more real, and uh, we. We built the hotel rooms, the, the motel room is built, I think about 15% oversize, so that the camera equipment could fit in without flying the walls too often, um, and keeping the ceiling pieces on wherever possible. 
I think in that way that that constraint um, kind of helped us uh, keep it real. I think Guy's performance is really extraordinary and, and is the backbone of the film. And I think that when you see the film several times, I mean, I've seen it thousands of times, uh, the performance doesn't just hold up, but it, it gets better and better. And when I look at, you know, the scene where he's discovering the tattoos, he does the most incredible job of knowing and not knowing something at the same time, remembering instinctively these tattoos, but not having any conscious memory of them having appeared. The simpler way to play the scene would be total surprise at the tattoos, but that wouldn't be true to what the film says about memory and the different types of memory, because what the film says is that you can take on knowledge unconsciously through repetition, through habit, and uh, the idea was we're seeing uh, somebody who's lived with this for some time and has seen these tattoos so many times by now, but he doesn't have any conscious memory of how they appeared, and what Guy's doing here is giving us all of those those levels at the same time, um, which is just a tremendous feat and uh, was just a delight to me to realize that, that he was going to be able to put um, all of the different layers that the character could possibly uh, suggest to us, you know, as we discussed the script, he was actually going to be able to get those, uh, get those on screen. It was really more than I, I dared hope. So here we come back to the, the creation of this Polaroid of the messages on the, on, on the back of it. And this moment where he just sees the, the key tattoo uh, in the mirror, I think uh, he just hit this just right. The idea with the tattoos is that some would play in the mirror, some would play as he looked down at his body directly. They would all be a little bit different, once again suggesting backstory, suggesting history that we don't have access to, well, like Leonard. Once again, coming back to a repeat here, that for this stage in the film we kept it fairly complex, the writing of the note, and then the magazine, uh, the clip going into the gun. Just can't make Through the film we sort of so parallel in, in the editing, what's going on in the black and white scenes was what's going on in the color scenes, but with a different spin. So we have him taking his shirt off and rediscovering his tattoos once again and going to the mirror. Um, but hopefully with a slightly different feel to it and a slightly different resonance. Um, but it also serves as a bit of a, a reinforcement. It gives the audience another another chance to, to see what they've just seen. and. Uh, and try and get a handle on on what this guy's thinking. Yeah, we tried to use the the car and the, the suit he's wearing to to suggest you know a particular uh, type of character to the audience, a kind of a, you know a, some kind of heroic figure and all the rest. Uh, you know, it, I got interested in the idea that you try and identify yourself with what you wear and what you drive, that sort of thing. Um, if you can't remember anything else about yourself. Um, continually seeing these notes and, and, and uh, photos of his and I tried to make everyone a little bit distinct and get the prop guys to to have a little bit of a difference to, to all of them and with these loops this is something that we repeat later try to give a slightly unique quality to all of them you did explain Lenny 
Carrie Ann Moss uh, playing Natalie, and uh, I wanted to introduce her with sunglasses because I wanted to get across the idea early on that he's continually having to look into people's eyes and figure them out, um, and that somebody with sunglasses is impenetrable to him. Yeah. Like the idea that you know, he would immediately run into somebody who, like him, has uh, some kind of injury to the face and uh, wanted to use um, injuries and as something that could ultimately help you orient yourself in time. Um, because it's it's something like, as with the haircut, uh, which is what I'd used in my previous film uh, to indicate time. Guess what name came up? You know, it's it's something that the injuries heal in a particular way through the film. Um, but his they get worse through the film instead of healing through the film. And then ultimately, we see how they're created. Are you sure you want this? I think uh, Carrie Ann does a tremendous job um, uh, in a different way than 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 Joey is doing, but of presenting the audience with a bit of a puzzle, a bit of an enigma uh, that Leonard is being presented with, and, and really throwing the audience into trying to figure out: um, is she good? Is she bad? Is she helping? Is she lying? All the things he has to figure out. But to me, there's uh, such clear sympathy there. That it, it leads in very nicely to this this like to portrayal of Leonard remembering his wife. Uh, it seemed to me that somebody with his condition in his situation would cling to their long-term memory. That would be the most the most precious thing to them. So I wanted to show fairly early in the film the way he values the fragments of his wife that he can remember. Um, fragments because it seemed to me, as he describes in the voiceover over this section that when you try and remember somebody you don't remember them in a clean and cohesive way you just remember or I do at least odd little details of that person and you you do try and combine them so we shot these very spontaneous little improvised uh, things with Georgia Fox playing the wife uh, all handheld um, just different situations different textures uh, that he might remember all the blocking of the camera, all the placement of the camera, this shot being the most extreme example, uh, is intended to put the audience into Leonard's head. Um, in those flashbacks, that's a direct first person, which you can't use too much in camera terms. So instead, the, the solution is to just keep the camera a little bit closer to Leonard wherever possible, to discover spaces with him, to sort of move in over his shoulder. Um, and the camera's always a little bit closer to, to um, Leonard than it is to the person he's talking to. Once again, just trying to, to lighten things a little bit, just show that, that Leonard has the ability to laugh at himself, to find the humor in his, his, uh, his condition, because it seemed like uh, that was uh, a necessary condition for somebody to, to cope with the condition in the way that, that he is. In, the, in Natalie's case, if you watch the film a second time, you get a very different idea uh, of how this scene plays in terms of its sincerity. Um, when you watch the film a second time, knowing or bearing in mind what happens when, your assessment of that character may change completely. And that idea fascinated me in terms of how the chronology could affect uh, the narrative. Here we're coming back to another one of our repeats. Um, 
some of them use exactly the same footage, some of them are slightly different takes so that there's a slight discrepancy in the way they play. And I like the idea that, that memory and context would change things very slightly. And here Leonard's describing his former life, um, and he's explaining how uh, the skills that, that he had in his former life and how they, they affect his ability or how he thinks they, they've uh, uh, enhanced his ability to live with this condition. Uh, his ability to read people and look at their body language and figure them out. In all the flashbacks, we, we try to make uh, Guy look a little bit different. His clothes fit a little bit tighter, just suggest a rather different different time in his life. I love the idea um, that Teddy would just pop up in the most seemingly random ways, so that when you've seen the whole film and uh, you sort of put it together in your mind, you realize there's a lot of off-stage story, if you like, that he's continually popping into frame. Um, when you think about where he was or, or what's been going on around Leonard, it's, uh, it's a little bit frightening. In order to play fair with the audience, um, the film plays a lot of tricks on the audience, and I felt it was important for the characters to articulate the, the rules of the piece, if you like. So Leonard himself here explaining about the unreliability of, of memory and the fact that it could be distorted, um, and Teddy reacting to that, uh, that seemed very important to me to very straightforwardly, very, very sort of boldly state um, some of the problems with memory and some of the pitfalls of trying to absorb a story from an unreliable narrator. I mean, any narrator is potentially unreliable, but um, this is a narrator who is very clearly unreliable and knows it himself and, and, and explains that to the audience. Um, and that that seemed essential to me to sort of uh, present that to the audience. I think Teddy here is very clearly sympathetic to Leonard, um, and that was very important to me to to show the different sides of this character. He's not just mischievous the whole time. Okay, just putting a little detail of him bumping up against the door, which I liked a lot because it seems to me that that's his whole. Uh, his whole way of living is continually bumping up against uh, things that he should be able to deal with uh, if if he didn't have his, his condition, but he's constantly having to react to things and um, make the best of whatever situation he's in. He's absolutely a character who lives in the present. This scene was shot that side, Bert's side is on location, Leonard's side is on the stage because we ran out of time on location, but I think it comes together seamlessly. This is not my room? No. Come on, let's go. I wanted to just suggest to the, the sharp-eyed viewer or the second-time viewer uh, the relationship, the chronological relationship between the black and white scenes and the color scenes through these objects left in the room that we've actually seen in uh, one of the preceding black and white scenes. And this scene is intended to be humorous, but it's also intended to be a little bit troublesome, a little bit, a little bit worrying for the audience or for Leonard that um, everything, even something as simple as checking into a motel, uh, is is potentially this this enormous problem for him because he can't make these new memories. Um, wanted to sort of almost suggest the idea that he might be checked into 10 different rooms at the same hotel. And here we loop back on the story, and by this time we're using just fragments of, of the loop, um, because 
by now, hopefully, the audience is beginning to tap into the rhythm of the piece a little bit. Introducing the story of Sammy uh, was something that, that came in the script very early on because I felt that we would need to see another version of somebody with this condition, somebody trying to cope with this, somebody suffering from this, in order to present the audience with extra information relating to Leonard's condition, but also for he himself to, to demonstrate how he has absorbed information relating to the, the condition. And people are often asking uh, about how does he remember he has this condition if he has no short-term memory. Um, but what the film actually says about memory and what is indeed the case is that you can absorb information in different ways. And I wanted to continually through the film suggest um, different ways that Leonard's absorbed information over time, uh, always suggesting that this, this gap, this unspecified period of time between what he refers to as the incident and where he is in the present, he's never going to be able to grab a hold of exactly what that period of time is, and neither is the audience. And it's in that gap that all of this stuff has been absorbed. When Stephen Tobolowsky came in to talk about Sammy, um, he was the first guy who really, to me, understood that Sammy is the backbone of the whole story. He has one line, <laughs> basically one line in the whole film, so it's, it's difficult to get actors to come in and audition for that, but he totally grasped how Sammy uh, would hold the story together and keep it moving forward. We wake up here with Leonard and try and figure out where he is with him. And These scenes of waking were, were very important to me, he refers to his condition being like waking up and continually waking up. And I felt like it was one of the easiest situations for the audience to immediately tap into. Um, the idea of waking up in a strange place and, and that, those moments of orienting yourself. So I wanted to show that directly. Um, with a bit of humor too as well, you know, the idea of um, waking up in bed next to somebody, not knowing who they are, but uh, pretending to. Um, and we do that a couple of times in the film in terms of showing him waking up and it I think helps give the audience something very concrete to relate the condition to uh, to their own lives um, rather than just the, the more abstract discussion of what it must be like that kind of thing Carrie Ann doing a great job there of just communicating just suggesting things to, to Leonard that um, he then has to process and sort of figure out, you know, what's happened here. Um, and Guy and his performance just continually uh, getting across the, that, that sort of uncertainty. Natalie's picture, I wanted the, the photo itself to be a little obscure and the message, you know, that's sort of crossed out uh, part there and the fact that she's lost someone. Uh, I wanted it to be as suggestive as possible, as, as intriguing as possible. Um, so that we'd really try and pay attention to how Leonard's come to write that and how he's come to scrub part of it out, and what that means in terms of his system. And, you know, what does it mean uh, that he can scrub things out or change his mind about what his notes are and all the rest? Uh, to me, that single crossing out immediately starts to suggest the potential for his system to be undermined or to unravel the idea of writing note on the little pharmacy bag and high pencil. You know. um, I was just continually trying to use the props to suggest a unique uh, 
a unique object, uh, something that hasn't been repeated, and therefore you would identify it as the thing you've seen before immediately. The notion that you would almost take some kind of offense uh, when somebody couldn't remember you, even though they had this condition, was very important to me to convey. And it, it is true, people with this, this, this type of problem, um, it's very frustrating for the people around them. Um, and Leonard is aware of that and responds to that in a quite gracious manner, which I felt was another key to his um, survival, his, his sort of ability to, to live with this condition. Teddy popping out of nowhere again. With these scenes, we were trying to use the story of Sammy to indicate to the audience the different types of memory, to suggest, uh, reinforce the things that, that uh, Leonard's been telling us in voiceover about how he lives his life. Hey, where were you guys when I did my CPA? Sorry. This was just a little um, crazy test that I... I wrote into the script. It's intended to be a little bit absurd. The black and white scenes are a mix of technique, um, handheld, high angle shots, this kind of thing. The idea was that as the film progressed, they would get a little bit closer to the color scenes. And here we're showing Leonard in a, in a very frustrated, slightly worried state. Um, of all the Polaroids, this is the most suggestive one to me, you know, with there's blood in it and so forth. And clearly freaked him out. I wanted to show his fear, really, his fear of what he may have done. Um, this is actually one of my, my favorite scenes between Carrie-Anne and, and Guy. Um, I think they really nailed what it was we were trying to do with the script at this point, which really is to show Leonard's frustration that he occasionally succumbs to, and the idea that the most frightening thing to him is that he may have done something wrong. Not that somebody else may have done something wrong to him, but that he may have done something wrong, and he can't trust himself. And that was an idea that was important to communicate. Um, Polaroids are pretty difficult to rip up. And, uh, I like the idea that he would, without knowing how he knows, he would know that you have to burn them. Included this material about the feel of the world and, and so forth, because I found myself in describing the project to actors and producers and all the rest. I kept, you know, knocking on their coffee tables and sort of saying, you know, this feel of the world, I mean, that's the kind of memory he has, that's the space he lives in, and that's how the film's going to be made in his headspace, in the, in the room, very claustrophobic and textured. And I wound up actually putting it in the film because it, it seemed very, it seemed to really get something across to people. Guy really reaching a, a very real emotion there. It was quite, it was really very exciting. It was in our first week of shooting and um, it was at that point I realized um, just how lucky I was with, with the casting decisions I'd made. This isn't the fastest paced area of the film, um, Come here. but Come here. I think it has to be here. You have to understand the underlying emotions of this character uh, to get any kind of sympathy for him. You, you've got to see him suffering in this way. Otherwise, he, you know, he'd just be a robot the whole way through. I also wanted to get this 
reference um, to the space where he doesn't have a tattoo. Um, suggests this idea that he's, he's kept a space there for when his mission is accomplished. He used mirrors a lot in the film. Um, but tried not to be too conscious about, you know, the, the kind of uh, symbolism and, and so forth in the film. But uh, it's, it's hard to resist having a character like this looking in the mirror all the time. Um, because he is just constantly trying to identify himself and orient himself. I also like showing, using the photo, you know, that Natalie has. I like the idea of just relating it to other people. You know, other people use photos in a not entirely dissimilar way to, to Leonard. This monologue from, from Leonard was much longer, I think, in the, uh, in the, in the, <laughs> you know, <just> <laughs> It was longer in the shooting script, and Guy came out, luckily, two weeks before shooting, so we had time to really go through it, and, and he was very insistent, quite rightly so, that we strip it down and really try and condense it, because, I mean, he's done a lot of films, and he knew uh, very well that it wasn't going to be in the finished film if we couldn't get it to a manageable length. The structure of the film is such that you can't remove any scenes, so this was one of the vulnerable areas, but it was essential to show what this guy thinks about himself and his condition and the state he's living in. We had to get that, um, not just show the emotion as we did in the previous scene of him being upset and whatever. Um, like the idea that Natalie would be listening to this, but he wouldn't really be aware that she was. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of, of showing what he thinks about all this and how he views himself and what, what he's dealing with. Um, because if you're trying, as we are, to tell a story in the first person, you have to get those things out there. You have to put them there, put them into the, the mouth of the character. Um, otherwise, you're leaving everything up to interpretation. I mean, Leonard is a blank slate to a certain degree. Um, we do sort of project things onto him, but um, we need something to hang on to. We need to see his view of him, himself. I like the idea of just seeing him in a, in a quieter moment, just sort of exploring the environment he's in and uh, sort of trying to orient himself, going back to get his get his jacket where he knows his pictures are. And, you know, that's part of his whole system is the photos in one pocket and all this, the, the habit he's developed you know, for dealing with this condition. And this is one of the only moments in the film where we show what somebody else is thinking or doing uh, that Leonard isn't aware of. Um, but I like the idea that there would be this, this one little moment where we saw Natalie considering what he said and relating it to herself. I just wanted to make that connection a little more explicit for the audience. She is there really isn't anywhere else in the film where we so clearly step outside that. Once again, we're seeing, he's looking at the photograph and he's relating her situation to his and, and creating that message on the back of the Polaroid. We're seeing the, the creation of that and then we're able to judge for ourselves whether it was created uh, sensibly or not. But we still don't know what the crossed out message is. 
Now I return to the, the oh. testing process. Um, this had originally, I think, in the script been in one sequence, but I felt that it needed to be spaced out more. Um, it needed to be emphasized more because it is so important uh, to understanding uh, Leonard's, Leonard's own condition and the way he uses his memory. Also very important to introducing the darker side of the character, which we see in this close-up. The idea of all the guilt he, he feels associated with, with the story of Sammy. Leonard's always reducing his existence to a series of sound bites he lives by. And by the end of the film, the idea was the audience to be very familiar with them. Wanted to really shift gears at this point in the story. Use those images, those nightmarish flashback images, and then throw us into waking up with him in a different environment, a motel room, and show his waking up process relating to the black and white scene that we've, we've seen earlier in the film. He checks the drawers, and yes, there's the Bible, but there's a gun. Uh, what's fun about this scene is this is the type of scene that a lot of film noir, a lot of, a lot of thrillers could open with, um, but because of this structure, because of this character's uh, way of looking at the world, we can have this scene you know, a third of the way through the film, halfway through the film, last scene of the film, whatever we want. Um, and I really wanted to take advantage of that um, because that was one of the attractions of the story is that um, you're continually going to be uh, able to, to have a moment of discovery, a fresh moment of discovery. You're continually going to be able to shift gears and, and be somewhere completely different with the audience. This is a, another set, um, very well realized, I think. Um, it just gave us the controllability in terms of shooting. We had to shoot all of the sequences in this room in one day. It was an incredible stretch. It involved a fight scene and all these these things. So, uh, um, but we had a we had a great bunch of people working together very well, uh, which was essential. And then the actors completely uh, bailing me out as well. Um, just being able to get across what I needed in a, in a fewer amount of setups than probably I had originally envisaged. You know, there's a lot of this scene plays in two shot, which works very well, I think, for the scene because we're showing this, you know, slightly comic interaction between these two characters and wanted to get them in the frame at the same time. Um, and Joe and Guy just totally delivered the goods here at four in the morning or whatever it was um, and got it all across in the two shot so I didn't have to do singles. And here we come back to the idea of and you see it in Leonard's eyes there, his fear of having done things himself. Having done something bad himself, he articulates it in the voiceover later on, but I wanted to really prepare the audience for that, that notion. So he goes back to his paperwork there, and we see Teddy sort of trying to look over his shoulder, help him, is he helping him, is he not? Um, and then this process of trying to work out the situation, like one of these, uh, like one of these word games or one of these riddles, you know, a guy finds himself in the room with the, the gun in the drawer and the body in the closet. How do you get there? And I think both actors just getting wonderful amount of humor into the situation, a situation that could be very grim. But at this point in the story, I wanted to lighten up a little bit and, if you like, have a little bit of fun with the situation and the grammar we've developed and, and over the rest of the reel I was trying to 
as I say, shift gears and use the structure and the situation for slightly more comic, slightly more of an action feel, uh, and freshen up the story in that sense, freshen up the, the pacing and the grammar of it slightly. Because it's the danger with such a, a sort of technical conceit, uh, you know, structural conceit, that the rhythm becomes too familiar, too predictable. And one of the interesting things about the character um, is, you know, people are asking me all the time, uh, how long can he remember things for? And the reality is he can remember things, he can keep things in mind as long as he pays attention, really. Uh, so, depending on how much is being thrown at him in different ways, that time span can vary. And at this point in the film, I wanted to show that time span getting shorter and shorter and shorter as things that he has to react to are being really uh, thrown at him. We had to shoot all the driving scenes very, very fast. Um, this is how this wound up being a two-shot from the front and then singles from the front. I think it uh, contrasts nicely with some of the other driving scenes and works quite well. And here we are back to this this moment of looping through that, that Polaroid. Now we have a slightly better idea of what it relates to, but we still don't know how it got there, how the guy got in the closet, how he got the blood on his face. I never said that Sammy was faking. This scene uh, between Stephen and, and Harriet, uh, I just think they did the most amazing job. It wasn't scripted except in broad terms, because it was always intended to play with voiceover as it does. So they had to really come up with it themselves, and I mean, they just did the most amazing job. Everybody was pretty speechless at the end of it. Um, a lot of people who've seen the film have very much been affected by this scene and, and related. A lot of older people who've seen the film have related it to dealing with people with Alzheimer's, which wasn't really something that I'd, I'd intended, but. Um, it's such an obvious connection when you when you look at it now, um, and seeing the frustration and, and the breakdown of the relationship between these two people, um, I think is very disturbing. So in these scenes, we're sort of jumping into the middle uh, of a situation that's increasingly bizarre and sort of fraught. Like the idea that he would say, "Well, I don't feel drunk," you know, that he would have this this bottle of booze and he'd be trying to figure out his mental state, his physical state, um, which is so hard for him to do. And once again, in the blocking, we're staying with Leonard, we're staying in the, in the shower cubicle with him, we're uh, making the same assumption that this is his room, and his bathroom, and then we're hearing somebody come in, uh, but we're staying in that space with him and we're not seeing anything that he can't see at this point. And then we see his reactive nature once again, which, particularly when you see the film uh, for a second time, uh, doesn't make quite as much sense as it appears to the first time, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, these guys did a great job with this fight scene. We had to shoot it very, very quickly, and I wanted it to just be messy and sort of brutal, slippery, naked man <laughs> wrestling with this other guy who doesn't know who the hell he is. And uh, they did a really, really fantastic job with it. And then here we wanted to see Leonard just immediately diving into the situation, clearly not understanding what's going on or who this guy is, and just making the decision to get him out of the way, get him taped up, get him in the closet, 
get the picture of him. You know, it's all systematized behavior. It's all um, having done this over and over again. And then back to his paperwork, referring to this insanely complicated note that gives him all this information about, about um, the situation he, he's in. And then Leonard's continually having to reduce this information to what's the essential element, what's the thing that can help him. Well, it's to get rid of him, and then, more importantly, perhaps, it's the uh, the reference to Teddy. So he's cross-referencing his pictures now. And, I mean, the complexity of what he's having to deal with here um, is, you know, extraordinary if you're trying to keep all this in mind at once. Um, and he knows that he's going to forget it. You know, in his bones, he knows that this information is going to dribble away, so he's having to really uh, try and assess the situation incredibly fast. And then he feels he's got his notes done and all the rest, so he can take a bit of a breather. But as we already know from having watched it, it's uh, not necessarily a successful endeavor. And to use the uh, notion of him tattooing himself in a sort of crude manner and contrasting that with some of the more flowery tattoos, you know, the different typefaces and everything, just to suggest that he's done his own tattoos or he's had other people do them, uh, depending on the different situation, just to suggest the world outside of the immediate story that we're seeing. This scene was really intended to be the ultimate extreme of how the uh, the ironies of you know sort of action <laughs> an action hero the hero of a thriller uh, trying to deal with uh, lack of memory lack of short-term memory and uh, I love the, the notion of, of somebody in the middle of a chase not knowing whether he was the, the pursuer or the pursued and through all these scenes we just see Leonard at his absolute most most reactive totally living in that instant of the present. All this stuff had to be shot incredibly quickly, uh, and some of it logistically quite complex, um, but everybody really uh, really rose to it. And I think there's an energy to these scenes and, and a lot of the rest of the film that, that might have actually been harder to, to create um, if we'd had more time. There's something about having to do stuff in, in a hurry, I think, that that can, uh, can get itself on screen. I felt it was important at some point to, to really just go for a moment of humor in, in terms of how he, um, how he, uh, he may find difficulty sort of dealing with, uh, dealing with the burdens of an action hero um, without access to, to short-term memory. Sorry. And uh, I think Guy does a marvelous, sort of straight-faced, uh, straight-faced version of, of this person dealing with this, this uh, exterior, we, we then matched the interior, but actually this is one of the few times where we had to change rooms, and so the window's actually on the wrong side, but no one's ever noticed. Once again, we're back to this single shooting day we had for everything that took place in that room, uh, which was pretty tricky, but we got it all done. And here we get one of the instances in the film, and there's a more extreme one later on, where uh, we show him forgetting on camera. And I felt that it was important to, with this story to really try and capture that moment of losing focus, just 
losing the attention. And I think I did that marvelously. And here we're back to the self-tattooing, which you know we looked into. It turns out you you can do it in a number of different ways. We tried to find one of the most straightforward and slightly grim. This is a dawn scene. It was actually shot in the evening. And the location, I, I loved the idea you'll see in the later scene. You know, he's burning the things there, but I love the concrete things, the way they looked, almost like a like a cemetery or graveyard. And here again, just, just trying to figure everything out in a hurry. What the fuck? Stuff was pretty tricky to film in the time we had. And uh, we actually wound up so pushed for time that we shot these interiors after the sun had gone down at, at night. But I think Wally did an incredible job of uh, matching uh, to the, the daytime material we shot. It's Callum Keith Rennie uh, being made to look much bigger than he is, much more sort of um, imposing than, uh, than he is in real life. Uh, he just did a great job of portraying this very hard to pin down, non-specific, kind of heavy, in the black and white scenes, we tried to create an overall change of perspective so that we're sort of moving around and using the light from the window in different ways so that as the film progresses, we're sort of coming around to a different side of the room and a different way of, of looking at the scene. This location is actually the same disused refinery that the uh, derelict building was staged at, but it's this massive complex. So we were able to you know, find a couple of different places to shoot there. That, you, know, you would never know they were in the, in the same place. I felt that just as it was important to show forgetting uh, from this character, to show him actually forgetting things, it would also be important, therefore, to, to show how he might try to fix things in his mind. Um, the tattooing itself, you know, the pain involved and, and all the rest, I think is quite suggestive of, of an attempt to, uh, to um, fix information. Um, but I felt ritual, um, this kind of um, ceremonial, uh, you know, burning of things, of, of objects, um, would also be uh, the kind of thing that, that he would try. And then, you know, we tried to just show the uh, relationship of these objects, what they suggest to him in terms of his, his memories. I love the fact that the guy just, he just uh, quietly sort of smells the book, using smell rather than sight, because it is such a direct connection to, to memory sometimes. In all the scenes with, with his wife, I wanted them to be a little bit, to be bittersweet, to be a little bit more real, because I felt like that somebody in this situation, the stuff he would remember probably would be less than ideal in a lot of cases. He'd be remembering times where they were sort of rubbing up against each other, rubbing each other the wrong way, or there was a little bit of friction. That sort of bittersweet quality to the, the flashbacks seemed very important to me, to, to keeping a feeling of reality to that relationship. I think too often uh, memories are portrayed in uh, films of this type uh, in two uh, too positive a way, too, too much the sort of rosy glow. I don't think that that's how people remember it. Certainly isn't how I remember. You remember a bit of everything, and a lot of it, as he says in the film, is stuff you'd rather not remember. 
scene. And then here we get into, in these scenes, we're getting into very much the the difficulties, showing the difficulties of, of somebody with this condition trying to deal with, well, plot, effectively, narrative. Um, the file, the, the report he carries, you know, the prop department spent a lot of time getting a bulk of material there with a lot of crossings out and notes and summaries and all the rest. Um, because it is just this, this irony of this guy trying to keep all this information in his conscious mind, uh, but the information is really too complex. Uh, there's too much of it. So he's constantly having to filter it, make conclusions, and then his future self is going to have to trust those conclusions. This is another scene of Leonard waking. You know, it's a motif that we sort of keep coming back to. And this one, in the design of it, and the photography of it, we're relating it as strongly as possible to the flashback scene that occurs later in the film, um, which actually does involve his wife. And that's actually the same shot, it's the same insert in both sequences of those objects on the bedside table. I wanted to put the audience into the mindset that in where you're seeing these objects from his past life so that you might, if you're not looking too closely, you might even think that we are seeing that, that flashback at this point. Although I think as soon as you notice the headboard of the bed, it's very, very clearly a motel to me. Everything okay? We wanted to show images of the, the trauma, his last memories that, that he's tried almost properly to suppress at times, but also at other times to try and remember more. Um, I, I like the idea that these would just rip across his mind in a manner. Okay, in there. And then once again, with this, this structure and this character, we're able to really throw the audience a, a new character that they have no idea who it is and uh, surprise the audience in that way. I think originally we'd have had a scene of him actually picking up all the objects and putting them in the bag and all the rest, but it's one of the few areas we were able to actually cut it out and condense it and just uh, There's something about the show the objects and then him going back to the car. Because, the because as the film has progressed, score, uh, you know, we found ourselves able later in the film to just be a little more shorthand uh, with the repetitions and with the connections between the scenes because by this time, hopefully, the audience has started to sort of pick up the rhythm of the piece. And here I wanted to just suggest the way in which an external influence, a voice at the other end of the phone that we're not hearing, um, would prompt Leonard to rethink his own conclusions. Now we're getting somewhere. And we're seeing his arrival at the discount in uh, exterior of the motel was as good as the interior, just very off the wall, a little bit peculiar. And we're seeing the creation of a Polaroid again. That's actually my car next to the Jagger. Still running. And we're seeing his props, his chart, his his map for, for living coming out. And we tried, as with all of these kind of props, to just use the little details of the texture of the paper and so forth to just suggest the age of the things, the number of times it's been folded, unfolded, all this. Um, it's tricky shooting yellow pages. You have yeah, to actually okay. dummy up whole entire pages. Uh, no, so you can get the clearances and all the phone numbers, that kind of thing. 
Leonard. This was a scene that um, a lot of people, um, as we were making the film, were sort of questioning the, the value of it or the relevance of it. But I always felt that it was essential to show the audience a very direct example of Leonard manipulating himself, of Leonard, um, his, his present self, creating a situation for his future self to, to arrive in. Um, it's that sort of self-manipulation that becomes so important to the end of the film uh, and our assessment of the character as a whole. Um, I just felt that uh, to play fair with the audience, uh, we needed a very concrete example of that. It was a very tricky scene for the actors to find. Uh, and Guy particularly uh, tried a lot of different things as he was shooting this. And in the editing, I think, uh, it really came together very nicely, the sort of awkwardness and slight embarrassment. Um, and then we come back to a, a different, a slightly different take on um, him waking up that we've already seen. And that was, to me, this was one of the most concrete kind of reassessment the that the audience gets of, of an image they've already seen, the image of him waking up on his own. Just wanted to come back to the bandage here and just remind people of the bandage on his arm that we've been seeing through the black and white scenes that's about to become significant. The idea of the hiding the food at one point in one of the old drafts of the script had been fleshed out on screen. You'd actually seen her do this and um, because I'd been fascinated by this notion of when you can't create memories. Uh, your idea of hunger, uh, when it's not a conscious idea, once you, you're hungry beyond a certain point, you don't actually feel hungry anymore. You're just shaky, but you don't quite know why. Um, and wanted to see Mrs. Jenkins uh, uh, using that to test Sammy. But uh, in the end, it felt like we didn't really need it. And uh, we had to simplify the story to some degree over the, the different rewrites. This whole problem, and that if I just could say the right thing, he'd snap out of it and go back to being doing a, a great job here of conveying the sort of mix of anger with Sammy, uh, but guilt over the way she's treated him. Um, that I think becomes very important to, to their story. And Guy really managing to seem incredibly different in his, his past persona than, than we've come to know him in the present. And uh, I thought it was very important, the idea that, that in his past persona, he might not be entirely likable. You know, he might, might not be a character that we uh, would want to identify with as much as we've been forced to identify with him in, in the present. And I mean, even in the design of his office and, and the, the world of the, the black and white stuff, it's not as, it's somehow not as attractive as the present. Uh, tense of the stories, the color sequences. His office is very sort of banal, the way he dresses, very sort of, you know, very much like an insurance guy, you know, it's all a bit bland, whereas his present is much more exotic. Um, and I felt that was important in terms of setting up the, the dynamic that Teddy introduces at the end in terms of how Leonard sees himself and the idea of wallowing in grief a little bit. Your it was Joey's idea to reveal Sammy. himself like that, like guy sitting back. Sammy. Nice little camera suggestion there. What, and in this scene, we get the most explicit 
reference, you know, so far to the idea of who are you in the present? How do you identify yourself? Where did this car come from? Where do these clothes come from? I wanted to just keep reminding the audience of that um, with increasing frequency or in, in increasingly uh, clearly as, as the movie develops, the same way that in the black and white scenes we just keep increasingly reminding uh, the audience of the bandage on the arm because these things are going to pay off towards the end. So with Teddy, we're continually getting this, this uh, parallel dialogue. You know, he's, he's describing other people's behavior, but we get the impression that he's describing his own behavior uh, at the same time. Um, there's great duplicity from, from Jerry that way. Remember those coasters weren't aged as well as we wanted them to be, so we changed them later in the film. It's actually one of the tricky things of making this film is there are so many continuity distinctions, uh, you know, distinctions of physical continuity that are important to orienting the audience in the story. But then, of course, you also get the natural errors of, that any film has because there's no such thing as perfect continuity. And the trick was deciding the volume of these differences, deciding when it mattered and when it didn't when the audience was seeing the things we wanted them to or not. Like the way that Leonard's clothes become cleaner through the film. You know, we had different suits for different days. Uh, the car gets cleaner as the story progresses. Uh, things like that. Um, you know, the, the uh, marks on his cheek uh, become more obvious uh, as the film progresses, those kind of things. And then within that, there are, there are small continuity discrepancies, um, like the aging on the coasters, that we hope people won't notice. Um, this was an interesting example of Guy as a tremendous logic filter on the story because, you know, when he came to shoot this, he said, well, okay, I understand that I'm going to check what the guy's saying to me, but why would I just write what Teddy said just because he said it? Wouldn't I be suspicious and all the rest? And we talked about it for a while, and Guy's solution was he actually writes the do not trust her in a slightly different handwriting to remind himself uh, to check the information when he has an opportunity, which is in fact what, what happens at the very end of the scene. And it was that kind of detail of behavior that Guy, because he's such a sort of logical thinker and really tapped into the behavior of the character, he's the kind of actor who, um, Guy doesn't do things that don't make sense to him, so we'll discuss it and you know figure out the exact logic of it. And that was very, very helpful to the film because the film has this uh, very obviously complex structure, so it invites criticism of uh, detail. It invites, you know, very intense scrutiny. Uh, and he helped me really, uh, really tie that up tightly, as did the other departments, because you know, the wardrobe people, the continuity people, all this sort of stuff, that, you know, they, they had to have all that stuff tight for their purposes as well. Um, so it was, uh, it was a bunch of different minds really coming together to help iron out those details, which was uh, wonderful to experience. And then as soon as Joey's out of the way, trust her. refers to this. And I, I like the idea of, uh, I think in the script, I made a reference to like it's playing solitaire, like he's playing solitaire or something, as if you know, these pictures were his playing cards. And then we see him scrubbing out that message because the one message cancels the other. But I think by this point, the audience is, is already feeling, well, okay, but then where does that message come from? You know, the don't believe his lies. And are we going to find out that? Are we going to see the creation of that Polaroid the way we're seeing the creation of these no, others? Give me that responsibility. And here we come back to the bandage. Love the idea of the black and white scenes showing Leonard as a, 
like a rat in a box, you know, you know, an animal being experimented on by phone calls coming in and different, different stimulus. This tattoo we elongated so that it looked more in perspective from the view he would have looking at his arm as he reaches for the phone, which we thought was kind of fun. And then we pull back to the high angle, almost like a security camera point of view, just to really try and suddenly reveal what he's reveal what he's realizing about himself suddenly. Of who's he talking to on the phone? What's he doing in this room? What the hell's going on? And here you see Leonard pretending a certain level of knowledge about who this person is and what's going on. And this is a moment I've looked at many, many times. And Guy's performance is extraordinary in that regard, that he has the different layers going on. He has the confusion, but he also has the duplicity of the character, the, the pretense, the, the lying, effectively, because he's pretending that he knows who this person is. He walked through the door and jumping into the situation in that way with, um, with this pretense of, of knowledge. And uh, I think, in much the same way, Carrie Ann's performance in these scenes, the set of scenes of the two of them in the living room, the way it comes together is tremendous because you kind of buy it the first time you see it. But if you look carefully, there are just these indications the whole way through that she's not being straight with him and that she's attempting to, uh, to manipulate him. I think it was in these scenes that I really, we shot them in the first week and I really started to feel how much input the actors were going to have, how much influence they were going to have on the way, um, the way this film came together. Because all through they're making choices about which level of reality to present and doing it with incredible imagination and skill. Um, there's a nice moment in here where uh, where Leonard feels his, his knuckles, he feels his hand and um, Guy wanted to do that because he just wanted to have that suggestion in this scene that, you know, that he's, he's hurt himself in a way that he doesn't quite understand. And, um, just draw a little bit of the audience's attention to that. Uh, which we do the way we do with uh, much of the blocking in the film by keeping the camera roughly in his perspective and then using a lot of inserts, a lot of extreme close-ups that Wally and I would try and grab as we went along. And Guy, being the meticulous performer he is, would do his own insert work, which was very helpful because it needed to match exactly, and it matches very well because he has an extraordinary memory, ironically, uh, which was very helpful from the point of view of reproducing an action in an insert. You know, at the moment he's just, just feeling his knuckles a little bit, and it was that kind of suggestion there that um, liked a lot. We went back and shot this last shot another day because we felt that the scene didn't quite have the ending it needed because we needed to really nail the idea that, you know, this is the heroic moment. He's going to walk out, he's going to save her, he's going to help her. And then as soon as Teddy pops up as he does and distracts him, it's just gone from his mind. I love the way Dodie cut this scene and the way we were able to use just the, the flare coming across. I love that effect. There's something very real about the sort of handheld, the kind of energy of, of the way things are progressing in the, in the black and white sequences. And this was a scene we didn't rehearse too much um, before, we, uh, before we shot it. Um, Carrie-Anne wanted to sort of save it for the day, and I was actually very glad she did uh, when I saw 
um, when I saw what she did. Um, we shot the whole thing handheld. Uh, Wally operated camera. He's a fantastic handheld cameraman. And I think the energy and the spontaneity of that really, really brings the scene to life. He also lit it so that we could shoot not quite 360, but we were able to shoot in a lot of different directions. So we pretty much did the whole scene on Carrie-Anne and then on Guy uh, without too much uh, fracturing of the scene. And I think that that helped us all just get into the, uh, the energy of it and uh, feel the rhythm of the scene instead of constructing it too much in the edit suite. You know, we were able to really kind of uh, get, it, get it on the set. I can say whatever I want and you wanted to have a scene that would be the extreme really in, in a way of, of how someone would directly confront Leonard in order to rouse particular emotions that they knew he was going to forget had been aroused um, and I think guy does a he, he gives a very accurate portrayal of resisting that because he kind of knows where it's going I think you see in his eyes telling you now because I'm going to enjoy it so much more if I know that you could stop me if you weren't carry on very skillfully turning up the heat and then calming down a little and then going a little further and we always felt that the last thing she said should in a way be the quietest once she'd really got him to a point um, of, of being incredibly angry with her Maybe your she would use the shouting, use the volume to, to bring him to this, this point of barely contained anger. And then, then just the last little quiet indication of how she can manipulate him would just send him over the edge. And we're back on the dolly at this point because we wanted it to be a little more controlled as from her point of view. And then we're in this peculiar moment where the audience is really, really left to figure out who they sympathize with at this point and whether, you know, what this says about, about Leonard and his ability to, to gauge the world around him or to interact with the world around him. And it leads us into, uh, for me, one of the most interesting scenes to shoot the film, which was this, once again, showing him forgetting, but showing him struggling not to forget something, a specific piece of information, and her just coldly outside waiting for the inevitable uh, loss of, of that information. And we tried to do it in a voiceover as well, just to get across this frenzied, frenzied state that you don't normally get in voiceovers. Voiceovers are normally so almost um, as if they're looking back on things from the future or, or whatever we wanted to be in the moment with the voiceover and it, the attention disappears there from the sound of the car door slam and then we're back to where we were with him trying to orient himself the sort of frenzy nature of the black and white scenes was meant to run in parallel with the color scenes so that the extremity of, of the emotions he's going through would would uh, increase in parallel in the black and white and the, the colour scenes as they came closer together towards, uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, I know you said you didn't want any calls, but... Once again, we're shooting half on the set, half on location there. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it uh, comes together very nicely. And then we're coming back to Natalie's for the beginning of these scenes. Just have a seat. Thanks. We shot this in, uh, in a real house that we just dressed and... Uh, I think it was great 
particularly in the, the first week of shooting, because we were having to work so fast to just be on a real location with real windows and all the rest. Uh, it worked very nicely. The um, camera here coming up to her point of view a little bit. Really for the first time in the color scenes, sort of coming off his eye line, because I wanted to just look at him the way she's looking at him in this scene. For the first time in the film, in the color sequences, really step outside Leonard a little bit and start to question who he is and, and how he would appear to us if we ran into him in the real world, compared with the idea of himself that we've been seeing. And then we're into this flashback, the same shot there of the objects on the bedside table, coming back to this, this recurring image of him waking up and trying to orient himself. Although in this case, this is prior to his, his memory loss. I felt it was important to clearly show the build-up to this scene of violence that has represented the, you know, the end of his ability to, to remember things. We've seen fragments of this through the film and now we're seeing it all a little more clearly. Although still not seeing what he can't see. And we're always careful to do that. The blood coming out was Guy's idea. I thought it might be a bit much, a bit too gory. But in fact, once I saw it, with the camera move we designed to sort of come over the floor, it, it felt just right because it, it felt like his mind leaking out somehow. It felt like the end of uh, his past self. I remember. Um, and then it's drifting the onto that floor that we've seen fragments of in uh, certain of the flashback scenes. She's asking questions here that, that the audience should be asking. Um, and you see Leonard struggling to uh, reference his conclusions, all of which you know he's drawn at some point in the past. It's to, to me, it's this wonderful sort of paradox of him trying to distill information constantly. Um, and you see this sort of great stack of paper there and the close-ups. And yet he can't go back, he can't even go read the whole file frankly, from beginning to end, um, because he wouldn't be able to concentrate for that long and keep it all in mind for that long. It's too fragmented, it's too complex. Um, I mean, Leonard has as much difficulty holding the, the plot together in that sense as the audience does, I and mean, that, that relationship's sort of very important. Um, it's not that I wanted Leonard to seem incapable, um, but uh, I wanted it to remember you by. I wanted you to be questioning his reliance on his former self's uh, conclusions. Creation of this Polaroid, I thought was nicely done uh, by Guy there, because we actually had to shoot the Polaroids um, weeks ahead in some cases. Uh, you know, the prop department had to go and photograph them, and then we had to sort of reproduce the conditions to shoot that exact same moment there. Um, and Guy was very proud of the pictures he'd take Polaroids you take during a, during a take, you know, of, of Teddy or of Natalie, they were very often incredibly similar to, to what the prop department had uh, created and what we'd been referencing all the way through the film. What's wrong? Somebody's come already. We're at the point in the black and white scenes now where they are no longer objective. They're moving towards the colour scenes in terms of the subjectivity. We're really there with him seeing his emotional state rather than being given any kind of objective information. I thought this idea of the, the rat in the box, you know, almost like it's a science experiment, you know, the, the note coming under the door would be really the, 
the ultimate extension of that. Um, I wanted to sort of come up with as paranoid a situation as possible, and I felt like a bloodstained, well, you can't really tell it's blood in the black and white yet, but you'll see it at the end, but a, a photograph of, of oneself being pushed under the door by people unknown. Personal persons unknown would be incredibly um, paranoia-inducing. <laughs> With these bar like scenes, we, uh, hmm? we're trying to address the challenge Good of showing condition. Natalie well, nobody's perfect. testing Leonard in a very short What's space of time. Uh, uh, because she, like Leonard, as she says, she's a survivor and she thinks on her feet. And uh, she's having to assess him and figure out how to uh, how to interact with him, or, or even how to use him, very very quickly. Why are you calling him back with Leonard's paranoia as the, the pace of cross-cutting between the color and the black and white increases towards the end of the film? I don't know, something bad maybe. Because of my condition, you don't believe. And once again, we're coming back to Leonard's greatest fear, really, um, that he may have done something wrong that he can't remember. Come by after Natalie. So we're coming into this space over Leonard's shoulder as we do so often in the film because I really wanted to just discover spaces with him and block it out so that we were always kind of want? seeing what he sees and noticing what he notices. Like that and ask for a beer. What is their address code? Why are you here? And Natalie here trying to size him up well, that's straight me. away. Yeah, we met before, right? Then why am I here? And I don't know, why don't you tell me? Again, sort of trying to feed a little information in order to get some. Coming back to his mantra of I have a condition and all the rest, which by this point in the story is beginning to seem a little bit, perhaps a little bit stale and perhaps a little bit, um, obviously uh, abnormal. I wanted at this point in the story the audience to be feeling a little bit more like uh, they were outside this character. Um, even as we're still seeing the story from his point of view, just getting a little bit more of a hint of, you know, if you walked into this bar and there was this guy there telling everybody inside that he has this condition and he has this big file of papers about his wife being killed and all the rest, and, you know, how you would view that in, in the real world. And it's the, the tension between those, those two aspects to the story, um, the subjective and the objective, that I wanted to really try and... Um, why did you come here? Bring together towards the end and really sort of crank up that tension as the story progresses to arrives uh, arrives at the meeting point between the black and white and the color. This thing with the beer here and the, the guy spitting into the beer gets very different reactions and it did at script stage as well. People either absolutely hated it and couldn't believe it, put it in there and wanted it out or they loved it because they felt like it was just clear and extreme um, and obvious in the right way. Uh, for a lot of money. So I sort of toyed with taking it out, putting it back in, and in the end I kept it because I felt like she would need a cruel and quick method of, of confirming the truth of what, what Leonard is saying about his inability to remember things because she's having to think on her feet and make this very fast assessment. We tried to use the music in this scene to have, have the shift between the two songs um, so that when you come back here to the booth and he's in a slightly different situation, you would recognize it. 
on the trip house. coming out of the, uh, the cup and then this reassessment of what this laugh means. At first you don't understand it, now you know more than Leonard and you understand it. It was a very cruel joke. Oh, it's amazing what a little brain damage will do for your credibility. Voice on the other end of the phone here, which we can't hear. Uh, clearly calming him down. The idea that you know, whoever's been interacting with him has been taking him to this peak, like Natalie does in the scene where she shouts at him, and then letting him calm down enough to begin the conversation again. And this is the scene where we, we went as extreme as possible in terms of the type of test that someone might might give somebody with no, no short-term memory to, to try and snap them out of it. Um, you know, the spitting in the beer with Leonard being pretty extreme and then this being a whole new level. Um, so she found a way to test him. We had to shoot this very, very quickly. And, uh, the actors just did the most incredible job. That's actually my wife, Emma. That's her hand there, doing the hands on the, on the watch. We, we tried to get the inserts as we went along because I wanted them to be as accurate as possible. Shot. But some days, like mm. the day we shot this, there was just too much material to get through. Uh, we were literally having to do all of the, the Sammy Jankis story uh, on she one really day. Bluff. So we shot this series of, of injections using the watch and the turning back of the watch to get across the idea of what we're doing. Um, time-wise in the scene, what she's doing to Sammy. And just moving Sammy. in gradually, just pushing in on the dolly and it's using increasingly shot. tighter uh, and more fractured uh, shots to show the, the uh, preparation of the needle and the shooting, uh, the, the injection and so forth. Sammy's little laugh there, just very heartbreaking. I think Steve did a tremendous job. Um, it's really about his only line in the whole film. <laughs> Stephen there doing what Guy does in a lot of the film in terms of, I think, representing in his look some awareness on some level of what's going on. And that was very important to me, that this not just be total surprise or shock, that there's some underlying awareness of what's going on, um, whether it's just on an emotional level or whether there's some, um, some greater awareness. because. It was very important to me the idea of the confusion of different types of memory. He's been at home ever since. Um, he doesn't even know that his wife is dead. I was wrong about Sammy. You know, I wanted to not make it as simple as Leonard describes the condition. He starts off the story by uh, laying out for us the difference between short-term and long-term memory. Um, and then as he progresses the story of Sammy, uh, and it starts to parallel his own more. Um, he starts to, to admit, as he is here, that it's more complicated than that, that you can't reduce the human mind to this incredibly simple separation of different functions, different brain parts. Um, and that you know, a lot of the film deals with Leonard's conscious journey through the story, being informed by an emotion that he doesn't quite understand. Uh, that underlies that, and that's you know a different part of his of his mind doing that, and it's the interaction between the the conscious mind and the the emotional memory and that sort of thing that that is so difficult for him, so confusing for him. I would sort of describe it to to Guy as that you know that moment where um, 
You know that something's wrong, but for a minute or so you forget what it is that's hanging over you, but you still have that feeling that something's up, something's wrong, and then you remember what it is, you know, that you've been worried about for the past couple of days or whatever it is. Um, and it's that gap, I mean, that, that's where Leonard is, his whole, his whole life at this point. This was a very complicated uh, scene that we wound up shortening quite a lot in order to simplify it. One of my uh, problems in, in what I write is I tend to say things you know, three times in a complex way instead of just saying it once very simply. So in the edit suite, Dodie and I uh, had to sort of strip it down and really try and make it a bit punchier. I love the way you can see the uh, tattoo designs through Joey's glasses on the on the over. Looks great on the big screen particularly. He told me. He thinks it's funny. He's been laughing at you. Once again, Teddy talking about someone else's behavior, but perhaps talking about his own behavior. And Joey really managing to get that across, almost a, almost a sadness from him as he describes his, his own interaction with Leonard. And here in the story, we just keep uh, pushing the notion of Jimmy, Jimmy Grant's coming back to the name the whole time, the, the boyfriend, the drug dealer, and all the rest of just wanting to repeat that as much as possible. Come on, Leonard. And the, uh, the trick with Leonard always being that as soon as he gets on his own, uh, as soon as Teddy leaves him on his own for too long, he resorts to his system. And his system uh, you know, shows him that Teddy shouldn't be trusted and uh, sends him off in a different direction. And that's continually his passage through the film. Is, uh, you know, being pushed in one direction and then just stumbling around into another direction. But because of the structure, it feels more purposeful. Like the idea of the fragment of the pole that's being burned just with an arm there. I thought that was very creepy and suggestive. But once again, you see Leonard ignoring things that he just can't assess or deal with because it's just going to confuse him. So he just lets it pass by. I mean, in that sense, I think he he could be called the ultimate pragmatist because if the information isn't immediately useful to him or pr he can't process it immediately, he lets it wash over him. Hey, like here, where we see the most overt reference to the confusion sorry, between uh, uh, Jimmy and, and Leonard. As you see from That's his okay. reaction to Natalie, he uh, doesn't know what to make of it, so he just lets it go and then goes back to the things he can grab onto a little more, or thinks he can, uh, his, the note in his pocket. So these Jimmy Grant steals drugs out of the bar Then we come back to him in the, in the motel room. I didn't you know, right? wanted Leonard standing at this point as he gets the final few details of uh, no, officer. the situation he's in from the person he's talking to on the other end of the phone. The lobby? Um, just want to have that sense of right we're about to get out of here. Finally, something of a relief from the uh, claustrophobia of being in this room for so long. I'm finally going to get to see what's outside that door. Um, although hopefully by this point in the story, everybody pretty much knows what's, <laughs> what's outside that door. Um, and we tried to uh, use the blocking here to take the audience into the office in the same way as They've gone in earlier in the film, same kind of tracking along but from a different room. And with Leonard in very different clothes. And um, that having quite a different effect on, on his appearance. 
Uh, I think enhanced by the fact that we're using basically the same shots until we get to Teddy here. Lenny. The film is full of direct repetitions, but it's also full of echoes and uh, yeah. cycles. And that's where the film starts to get very confused in the, in the mind of the audience. Uh, and in my mind as I watch it, and it's a deliberate uh, confusion, it's a deliberate um, spinning of, of narrative that the idea was that it would sort of live on in hey, the mind smile. a bit, oh, wait, and, uh, the relationships between the different scenes, the black and white, the Over car here. and so forth. Uh, it would become hard in the mind to distinguish between what you'd seen when, and that the film would live on in the mind and, and sort of grow in the mind uh, to that degree. And one of the things I'm happiest with is, uh, with the film, um, one of the things I'd really hope for is that I could come into a screening halfway through and not know what scene's coming next, even though I have a good visual memory and I've seen the film thousands of times. And that's actually the case. Um, it's... You know, it's that kind of organic in that sense. It's that messy, even though it's so tightly structured. And then we see the creation of the Teddy Polaroid, which is the key hey, one. It's the one we've been most uh, referencing through the film. And I think that helps give a sense of impending conclusion. That's then immediately fortified by this music cue of Dave's. It's the same as the last time we pushed in here with this series of shots. Uh, but the truck coming to rest in the position we saw it at the beginning of the film as the Jag pulled in. Uh, this was a nightmare day. We had to shoot a huge amount of material, very complex in a very short space of time. Huge wardrobe changes, vehicles coming in and out, continuity nightmare. Um, it's amazing it all came together in the space of time it did. But, um, we were able to get exactly the same shots, the same angles as he as he comes in here. Um, what, I, what I love about this, uh, this set uh, and that exterior is it feels very different in black and white than it does in color. And I thought that was very supportive to the film's notion of context and different ways of looking at things and different ways of reassessing um, a fact or a piece of narrative or information. Um, and these cuts of the wife, uh, something Dodie suggested quite late in the process that I immediately uh, seized on as being a great idea in terms of showing the way he uses these fragments of memory of his wife. He, he puts them together um, in this, you know, creating this almost this sort of Frankenstein's monster, this kind of approving hey. wife who's urging him on. Um, but it's made from fragments that we've seen in a different context. And, uh, it was exciting to see that him reuse the these memories in, a, in an inappropriate manner, or a questionable manner at least. Yeah, I remember you. And here we finally get Jimmy with the moustache we recognize and well. the clothes. We had uh, a suit fitted differently for Larry Holden, who plays Jimmy, than we did for Leonard, so that Larry would seem bigger. And so the suit and the car would seem different. You'd, you'd reassess uh, what you'd thought of this outfit and this, this automobile, um, seeing it in a totally different way, you know, he's got the collar sort of outside the suit, that kind of thing, and, it, and it's a much tighter fit than it is on Leonard. Um, pants too. I think Larry did a terrific wait, job wait, 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 wait. the very difficult thing of turning up and having to plead for your life um, in half a day, you know, just having to, uh, to motor through these scenes, but um, these guys were really in it. And then coming back to the wife, turning around watch what's going on. And uh, Larry 
very convincingly getting strangled there. That's actually where we see the uh, cuts arrive on, on Leonard's cheek. A lot of people miss that. But I didn't want to be too, uh, too on the nose with it. Um, it's there if you're looking for it. It's tough to know how long you can show somebody being strangled, because obviously you can't show it in real time. It just becomes unbearable. Um, so we tried to find a balance there. And then we see the creation of another Polaroid. And, uh, and taking on Jimmy's clothes. Um, and this is where the, the story all sort of starts to come together. This is where the black and white meets the color. And I like the idea of having that transition occur over a developing Polaroid. Um, it's funny how many people miss the transition. But if you um, still get a sense of, you know, the the colour coming into the black and white, you're still going to find that that feeling of approaching clarification, approaching conclusion, and and that was important at this point um, because this is where we are in the story, our forward-running objective storyline and our backwards-running subjective storyline have now met. And it's that tension between the objective and the subjective, or that relationship between them, that is going to uh, create our ultimate impression of what this story has all meant and how the pieces have all fit together. Poor old Larry just got dragged down those stairs all day. So, see Leonard reacting first to Sammy, the mention of Sammy, and then to the sound of the engine, this great sound that that Teddy's car had that we used a couple of times in the film. So he's looking for answers. There's nothing on the back of that Polaroid at this point. And uh, we have to see how that comes about. But he's at a point which the audiences, the rest of us, you know, are also at this point of needing answers. And um, we see him here pretending not to remember. And I think that's very significant. A lot of people miss the significance of that. To see him, we've seen him manipulate himself in other ways. Now we're seeing him actually lying about his condition, which we haven't really seen before. He does it to catch Teddy in a lie, but I think the, the implications of it are more significant than that anyway. He hits Teddy with the camera. We used the camera because he's been carrying it around the whole, the whole film, it seemed like the most appropriate implement um, and it would annoy Teddy rather than you know, laying him out. So he's got this guy and he's um, he's not going to let him go without, without getting some answers. But right from the beginning, um, from when Teddy starts explaining things, we wanted to get that ominous sense that he's desperate for answers, he's begging for answers, but he's not necessarily going to like what what Teddy has to tell him, and the audience isn't necessarily going to like what Teddy has to tell him. Um, it's, I mean, it's been fascinating to me to, to get audience reactions to this scene. Uh, it was very important to me to have the conventional scene of exposition at the end of this movie that comes at the end of every other thriller, and it's always the bad guy, the, the disreputable character, who you have to look to for the answers. And people find it very difficult to accept these answers from Teddy because they've been looking at him the whole film, questioning him, seeing his duplicity, and they've been looking at this inscription, don't believe his lies. Um, but that's the key. You know, where does the inscription come from? We haven't seen it written yet. We've seen all the other Polaroids created. We've seen where the suit comes from, where the car comes from. But you've got to bear in mind, where does that inscription come from? What prompts it? What prompts Leonard to write it? We haven't seen that yet. 
And with the grammar of the film, what we're, we're doing here is we're showing Teddy giving him the answers, Leonard denying them, but these mental images breaking through. And this to me is what's interesting about the grammar of the film and the way people interpret it, because the whole way through the film we've been very upfront, and it was important to be upfront with the audience, about the fact that this is not necessarily a reliable narrator. And at several points in the story, um, and this is by far the most obvious, where we actually show revision of long-term memory. We show revision of memory uh, in visual terms. And here we see it with him visualizing the insulin being injected and then him seeing that in a different way, seeing that just as an innocent pinch. And right there, it's absolutely explicit that what we're dealing with here is an unreliable narrator. Um, how could it not be? Because we've seen it both ways. So we're not equipped at this point to judge which one is real or not. But it's bringing us back to something that Leonard says early on in the film, in the scene in the cafe between the two of them, that is so much the key to what happens and how you should interpret this scene. Memories can be distorted, they can be changed, and they can be changed by somebody else, or they can be changed by himself. And what happens in the scene and the dynamic between these two characters is that Teddy gives him a series of different answers. The feel to the scene, it's very carefully edited from the point of view of the, the verbal content. The feel of it is a contradiction, that Teddy tells him things that contradict, but if you watch it closely, it doesn't contradict. The first half, or rather the second half doesn't actually contradict the first half. The issue of Sammy and Leonard's relationship, the character of Sammy and whether he is Sammy, as, as Teddy is saying, um, doesn't actually contradict what he tells him about Leonard having already killed the guy who attacked his wife. But people watching the film seem to value their visual memory to the extent that they can't divorce Teddy from the idea of him lying, don't believe his lies and they choose to reject the answer, even though right here we have a piece of empirical evidence, we have something outside of what Teddy is saying, a photograph, and that has to be accounted for. And Teddy provides us with an account, and, and it's the only version we're given. Um, and it's, it supports this evidence that's outside what he's saying. So there are all kinds of things in the scene to try and chip away at the concept of Teddy lying, but people are very unwilling to accept it at this point. And what Joe gets across wonderfully here is the notion that Teddy's done this before. Teddy's told him this stuff before. Maybe many times. He's very well versed in the details and he's clearly very well versed in how Leonard is going to react to this information. And he's using the truth through this scene to destabilize Leonard because Leonard is throwing him up against the wall. He's threatening him physically. So he confronts him with the, the truth and destabilizes him. And it's Exactly the same dynamic as is going on when, in the black and white scenes where Leonard's in the hotel room. He slips the picture under the door, Leonard reacts to it with absolute panic, gets him on the phone, and then he calms him down. It's, it's all about control and manipulation. And what they both get across really well in this scene is the implied backstory, the idea that Teddy knows all the buttons to push, he knows all the truths that are going to get a rise out of Leonard and help him to manipulate him and control his emotions because he's been doing this for some time. 
Um, and it's that sort of notion that, that is crucial to the film, to continually imply a backstory, the stuff that's happened off screen, the stuff that's happened between the attack and, and now, and Teddy is the key to that. But we're at a point here where we, like Leonard, are not prepared to accept these answers, even though they're clearly the truth. And so what we finally see here is Leonard creating what we've seen through the film, the idea of Teddy lying, don't believe his lies. But what's prompted him to do that? Well, we carefully worded the voiceover and kind of we worked a lot at that um, to not make it too obvious. But um, it's clearly he's written this because he can't accept the truth of what Teddy said, not because he thinks Teddy's lying, but because it's unpalatable. And here we see him destroying his memories deliberately. I like the idea that Polaroids are too, too durable. You can't rip them, you have to burn them. And he burns them with this kind of practiced ease. This is something he's done before. As Teddy says, you know, he's taken, a pic, uh, taken pages out of his police file. There's a deliberate, uh, there's a deliberate loss of information that's, uh, it's very important in our assessment of this character at this point in the story. Do I lie to myself to be happy? But once again, however people in your case, Teddy. view this, and it's quite explicit that yes, he's lying to himself. Um, and he's lying to himself in a very, very clear manner here. Um, people, hopefully, are still in tune with the character, in that even though he's he's choosing hey, to lie to hey, himself uh, about now. Teddy's role in things, right, and he's trying to free himself from Teddy's grasp, that's a positive thing. We're in tune with that, because even though um, the methodology may seem suspect, you know, to lie to himself and all the rest, the end result is a positive one. Teddy is somebody who has been granted power over another individual and he's, you know, grown to abuse that and manipulate him in different ways. Um, and his most powerful, Teddy's most powerful weapon in that, that in his arsenal of how, how, he, uh, how he can control this, this somewhat unstable person, his most powerful weapon is definitely the truth. Because that's what most affects Leonard. That's what chips away or pokes at what he values the most, which is his, his long-term memory. What I wanted to show in these last few few moments is the, the reinterpretation of the Remember Sammy Jankis tattoo. Um, the idea that he has to reinforce that lie in order to keep going to achieve his objective. And this wish fulfillment visualization, this is what his revenge is, his loving wife head on his chest, yeah. tattoo, referred to earlier in the film where he says, I've done it. All these things coming together because he has a moment of clarity now where Teddy has been oblivious to the fact that his continual truth-telling has developed in Leonard's unconscious to an extent where it has actually seeped in. Teddy's told the truth just one too many times. Now, where was I? How's that? I don't need anything. Like that, really. 